This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and uh, we're, we're walking through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And uh, I've had a few people say to me, wow, this isn't what I really expected on a series on spiritual gifts. Um, And one of the reasons I think maybe a few folks have commented that way is because we've sort of slowed down uh, in this middle chapter on love, uh, the chapter about uh, between chapters 12 and 14. We've slowed down and are covering this carefully because it's really the heart of the passage. It's really the heart of the teaching on spiritual gifts is the motive behind them, the motive behind them to love others, to build others up, to care for others. So here's what we've covered so far in chapter 13. Uh, We have looked at the fact that Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit that you can have extraordinary spiritual gifts, and yet if you don't have love, you're nothing. He says that you can can do extraordinary acts of service, extraordinary acts of service, yet if the motive is not love... It, it counts for nothing. And so we looked at that, and then last, or two weeks ago, we looked at um, where Paul begins to write about love, and he personifies love. He takes these characteristics of love, and he makes them personal, and that's where we are today. We talked about the fact that the context of this is love, which we must understand God's love for us so that we can express his love to others, that the context of this is love and that it's really a portrait of Christ is what chapter 13 is. A lot of times this is read at weddings, we've said, and that's appropriate, uh, that is fine, but one author said this, and I think it's helpful. He said, the dominant image to associate with 1 Corinthians 13 is not the wedding gown, but the cross. That's really the dominant image here, is that this is the work of Jesus that's ultimately in view. Now, now if you had 1 Corinthians 13 read in your wedding, uh, that is excellent. We're not critical of that. You don't need to go home and edit the tape or like cut that out or something like that. Uh, please, it is appropriate. But the starting place is God's love for us. And in the context here, it's how people in a divided church are to relate with one another. But it certainly has reference for how we love other people and love other Christians in particular. So what I want to do is read 1 Corinthians 1 through, uh, I'm sorry, verse 1 through chapter 7. Boy, it's second service. I'm a little confused. Let me say this again. I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and pray, and we're going to go home. So I think that's it. That's it. Because the way this is starting off, it's all downhill. Once I start commenting on it, I don't know what I'm, I'm talking about. Actually, I feel pretty good. I'm not, sometimes I'm tired on the second service. I'm really not tired at all. You people don't make me tired. Uh, it's the people in the first service that wear me out. Uh, just kidding. Actually, I'm going to talk about that attitude in the service. So I've moved from not thinking clearly to feeling a little loose and dangerous. So here we go. I'm going to get back to the scripture <laughs> where I start casting judgments on everyone who was here at 9 a.m. or something. I love those people. Um, so here we go. First Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your holy word to us, and we pray that you would speak to us as we look at this today. We pray that you would speak to our souls by your spirit and that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ in a glorious way. You are the God of love. Lord Jesus, you are the Savior who laid your life down in love. Holy Spirit, you're the one who communicates the love of God to our hearts and minds and opens them up. And we just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your love today and that you would enable us to turn and love others as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's what we're going to do. This will be the last sermon in this series where we're kind of surgical and just take a phrase and expand it out. We'll start moving at a faster clip after today. But I'd like to just dig into a few of these phrases, understand what do they mean, um, even what some of the original language behind it, and then try to make an application to us by helping us see how Christ exhibits this and uh, how he calls us to exhibit this love as well. The first section, the first we, last week we covered, love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, verse 5. Today we're going to start in the next statement in verse 5. Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. The NIV translates it this way, love is not self-seeking. Now, again, this is a personification of love. This means this is how a loving person is to act. This is how the Lord acts towards us. A loving person does not seek his or her own way because love is not preoccupied with self-interest. Love is not preoccupied with uh, our own self-centeredness. Love does not insist, the ESV says, does not insist on its own way. Love does not even insist on its own way when it has something coming. Love isn't insisting on its rights. Love actually releases its rights when doing so would demonstrate care for another, preferring another, profit another. So love is not self-seeking. And we say, wow, that, that sounds really hard. I mean, if I'm going to love other people, do I have to hate myself or something? Is that what you're talking about? Is like love like equals self-hatred? No. Love doesn't equal self-hatred. Love is self-forgetfulness. Self-love and self-hatred are both self-consumed. Love is self-forgetful. It's God-consumed. It's others-oriented. And so the point he's making here to the Corinthians and to us as well is that if we are to experience the love of God and then walk in his love, we'll be characterized as those kind of people that do not insist on their own way. In Corinth, this is a huge problem. People are insisting on their own way all over the place. 
Um, one of the examples we've talked about earlier is he has to correct them because people in the church are suing each other. So they get into a dispute, and rather than handling it in-house, mediating it, peacemaking in the body of Christ, um, they are going to civil courts to settle their own disputes. So people are pursuing their way. Paul says, wouldn't it just be better to be wronged for the sake of Christ than to kind of take your business out in front of the world and hash it out? Another example would be um, where he talks about pursuing the good of another over our own is in chapter 10. This is a big issue. In verse 24 of chapter 10, he says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's love. Love is not to seek my good, or the, but the good of my neighbor. And this is where that comes in in chapter 10. Here's what's happening in Corinth, you know. After church today, if you're going to make lunch, it's nice outside, you're going to grill outside, maybe, uh, and you stop by Kroger or Market Street or wherever you go on the way home, and you just pick up a couple steaks or some chicken or something to grill afterwards. You just walk in the store and make a non-religious purchase, right? There's nothing religious about going and buying meat down at the uh, supermarket. But in Corinth, it was a little bit different because when you bought meat in the market, this is frequently what happened. An animal was slaughtered in a pagan temple to a false god, and then the meat was then sold in the market. And so Paul is addressing to them, how should you relate to that? And he says, basically, eat the meat. It's not a big deal. Don't go to the temple. You shouldn't be eating in the temple. That's wrong to be worshiping in the temple, a false temple, a pagan temple. But if, if, you know, if, if somebody slaughters an animal and offers it to a false god and then sells it in the meat market, you're not going to get demons or cooties or uh, unclean or whatever. Just eat the meat. If an unbeliever invites you over, you can eat what the unbeliever serves you. But if you're eating with someone who does think it's wrong to eat that meat and is concerned that by eating pagan contaminated meat, they themselves will have soul contamination of some sort or in their conscience, they can't do it. Then in that case, don't eat. Not for the sake of your conscience, he says, but for the sake of theirs. You're free, but limit your freedom for the sake of someone who doesn't have the, is not experiencing the same freedom you are, is what he says. Well, isn't it my right to eat that steak, no matter who it was offered up to in some ritual that I don't even know about before I bought it at the market? Sure, Paul says, you're free to do that. But for the sake of your brother or your sister who doesn't feel that and would be troubled and would be led to eat maybe against their own conscience and and cause them to stumble by doing something they don't feel they should do because you do it, then don't do it. He says, limit your freedom for the benefit of another. That's love. That can sound surprising to us. Well, limit, I've got rights. I'm an American. What do you mean limit my freedom for the benefit of someone else? That can sound shocking until we listen to Jesus when he says walking out the Christian life is dying to ourselves. Then skipping on the chicken over lunch isn't that big of a deal when compared to (laughs) self-death, dying to ourselves. Being motivated by love is not pursuing my rights, not pursuing my freedom. It's pursuing the glory of God and the good of another. And aren't you glad Jesus relates to us this way? Jesus relinquishes his will to the Father. Think about in uh, Gethsemane on the night that he was arrested. He prays, and this is what he prays in Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What's he doing there? He's saying, Lord, if there's another way to save the people... Um, I I would wish for another way, but not my will. It's your will. I submit myself to your will. 
I'll take the cup. What's he talking about there? The cup is a figurative phrase referring to the cup of God's wrath. It's a picture. He's saying, I'm going to drink this cup, not literally, but I'm going to drink this cup of God's judgment and wrath. God the Father is not judging the Son as if the Son is guilty. God the Father is pouring out his wrath on uh, that we deserve on his own Son. So Jesus is saying, I will take your judgment for their sins on myself according to your will. I just want to do your will because of love for them. John 15 says, No greater love has this than a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying, Lord, your will, Father, your will be done. I will love these as you love them. I love these people. I give myself for them. Do you see what he's doing? He's not insisting. He is submitting himself to the Father, motivated by the glory of God and the love of the people. He's dying in our place. He's taking what was due us. He's being a substitute for us. That's the greatest love imaginable. And it's when we understand his love to us that we can love others. The more we understand the Father's love for us, the more we can allow the Father to love through us to other people. You know, this is something that is not true that many of us believe. This is not true. Some of us believe that if we had a bad family background, bad upbringing, and, and, you know, many of us did, and you were in a situation where you never experienced love from your earthly parents, never experienced love from your earthly father, maybe you don't even know your earthly father, and somehow you felt crippled in life and crippled in marriage if you're married and crippled in friendship and crippled in the church because you think, well, I never was a recipient of love in my home or not, not the right kind of love and that I'm really limited in loving others. That is a lie because the grace of God comes into our lives and makes us new people and can enable us to love others. The grace of God changes us so that we can love others. So I'm not saying that you may not have some particular challenges and difficulties and grieves and I'm not saying you don't have particular real hard, hardships based on your background. That's not what I am saying. But I'm saying you don't have a cap or a level on how much you can love based on the home you grew up in. But this is true. That if we don't know the love of a heavenly father, then we won't be able to communicate the heavenly father's love to others. You can communicate the love of God to others without experiencing the love of an earthly father or an earthly mother. But you cannot communicate the love of God to others if you've not tasted the love of God because you're experiencing God's love for you. If you haven't touched the father's love who sent his son to die for you, if you've not tasted and experienced that, if we're not living in the good of how God loves us, then we won't have his eyes to love others with his love. Jesus related to us in our sin with love so that we can relate to others in the same way. Love does not insist on its own way. Secondly, he says here, love is not irritable. It's not irritable. What he's saying is love shows up in how we respond to other people when they're acting in ways that we don't like. When someone else is behaving in a way, especially towards me, that I don't like, then love says that I am not to be irritable with them. Love doesn't respond with irritation. 
Here's how the NIV translates it. Love is not easily angered. It's not exasperating. It's not exasperated, I guess is how I should say that. So when we love someone, we're not easily irritated by them or angry with them. Now, the reality is that people can be irritating. And people can be exasperating. But here's something I've experienced in my life. The verse before, when I am not insisting on my own way, love does not insist on its own way. When I am not insisting on my own way, and when I am not seeking my own way, I find people are a lot less irritable. It's amazing how that works. When I'm not pursuing my way, insisting on my rights, then all those other people just, they change or something. I don't know, they're just not irritating anymore. Why is that? Because each of us have the tendency, when we're irritated, when we're angry, we have the tendency to place the problem out there. You irritate me. That was an example. I wouldn't point to somebody in this section. But you, uh, you irritate me. That, he makes me so mad. Well, what's the problem? It's out there. But the Bible teaches that the real problem is in here, that I'm not acting loving towards them. The problem's my love for them in the way that Christ has loved me. The problem's not that they're... I'm not denying that there being somehow a temptation to be irritable. I'm not saying that they're not acting in a provoking way. They may be. But the real issue is that the love of God is not flowing through me to them. The real issue is not that they are irritating. The real issue, according to this verse, is that I'm acting unloving unlovingly towards them. I had a friend who used to say, and you may have heard this before, but he used to say, you know, if someone can get your goat, it's because you got a goat to get. And this guy wasn't even from Texas. He's like from Boston. I were to hear that. But uh, if someone can get your goat, you know what that means? They just get at you, irritate you, provoke you. That, that guy just gets my goat. What he said is if someone can get your goat, it's because you got a goat to get. Meaning the problem's not out there, the problem is in here with me. You know, when you read the Gospels, you don't really get a sense that Jesus is irritable. I read that we just spent a year in John. I can't remember a text where I came away and say, wow, Jesus is easily angered and really quite an irritable kind of person. He's not exasperated with the failures of other people. He, he's certainly not irritable with his disciples who are irritating. They're, they don't get it. They, ask the, they have to learn the same lessons over and over. I mean, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're self-promoting. That's irritating if you're perfect, or it could be temptation to irritation, if other people are acting this way. The crowds show up, give us food, give us, do a miracle, give us free stuff. Okay, here's the food. The next day, Jesus is teaching them to follow him. Oh, we're out of here on that. That's irritating. But Jesus is never irritated. He's not exasperated. He's not sinfully irritated, sinfully exasperated with anyone. He's certainly not that way with those who are really sinful in the world's eyes. Jesus has got patience and forbearance all day long for tax collectors, prostitutes, the marginalized people. You don't get the sense that when you read the Gospels that, that Jesus is burdened, bothered, inconvenienced. There's not a passage you read where Jesus comes into town and goes, Are you kidding me? Another leper? How many lepers are around? How many lepers do I have to heal? Okay, come on. Get over here. 
That's not the way he's relating to people. Times where he healed everyone in their town. Scripture says he's compassionate. He's caring. He's, his motive is the good of others. Now, he does correct people, and we're going to talk about this later, where he does correct certainly the self-righteous, and in particular the Pharisees. He does correct them. But even his correction is to move the things out of the way, their sins, their rules, their laws, their legalism, all the stuff that blocks them from God. He wants to remove all that sin, that nonsense, those crazy rules, all that they're doing. He wants to remove the extra-biblical rules. He wants to move that out of the way so that they can relate with God. His motive is compassion. His correction is compassion. My irritation is not compassion. My anger, easily angered, is not compassion for people. But his is. Jesus not only models this kind of love, but Jesus empowers us to love this way. This is so important. So when Jesus dies on the cross for us, he is dying to forgive us. So all of my easily angered, all of my irritation, all of my impatience, all that stuff... Jesus dies for those sins, so I don't have to pay for it. That is really good news, and the same is true for you. But he not only dies so that that goes away, and I'm at like neutral zero here or something. He dies so that he can also change us, so that his spirit dwells in us, so that we can start relating with people and being less irritable and more loving, less impatient and more patient less self-seeking and more God-seeking and others-seeking. He dies to change us. That's the good news. He rises to defeat the power of sin. So there is tremendous hope that God can change us to be more more patient people, a less irritable lot of folks. That's the purpose of what he does. He demonstrates patience. He is patient with us, and he saves us to make us patient. So nobody, if you're convicted by this, I am, it's not hopeless. It's forgiven and change is provided. The power for change is there. He's living in you. He's the Holy Spirit. It's the application of this word by the Spirit to our lives to change us. As we gaze and meditate and consider His great love for us, He's not been irritable with us. I hope you didn't come today feeling like God is irritated with you because He is not. As a believer, if you are here today, he is not reviewing what you did yesterday, reviewing what you did this morning and what you failed to do this morning, and going, okay, I guess so. Come on in. Sit in the back, though, but come on in. I mean, goodness, how how long? You know, he's not like that. He's not irritated. He's not like he is welcoming you to a throne of grace, the Bible says. He is welcoming you with open arms because your sins have been laid upon his son, He is not sighing, oh, rolling his eyes. He's not sighing over you. The scripture says he's singing over you as believers today. He's rejoicing in the work. He's celebrating the work of the Son. He's glorified by the work of the Son. And we come in Christ, united with Christ. Is God the Father irritated with Jesus the Son today? No. We're in union with Jesus. And so he is loving. He loves the Son And we're with Him. We enter today His worship with Him, in His name, by His blood, under His authority, filled with His Spirit. 
So we are united with Christ. He's not slightly ticked off with everybody here today. We're in Jesus Christ, and he welcomes us before him today. And when I began to see God that way and relate to God that way, aware of what he did for me, then there is hope for my heart to be changed to relate to others in the way God is related to me. Well, we must move on. Next, it is not resentful. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. The word resentful here in your ESV, there is a note, a footnote that says it does not count up wrongdoing, does not count up. Sometimes it's translated reckon, kind of an accounting type of a word, a counting up, a reckoning led one pe- person to really loosely paraphrase this idea that love remembers its creditors and forgets its debtors. The NIV translates it, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs done to it. Now, Paul is a realist. He knows that we're going to be wronged in the church, in the world for sure, but even among believers like in Corinth. We're going to be wronged, and God knows we're going to wrong others. So how are we to relate when someone wrongs us? He's drawing our attention to how do we relate when we are wronged. We don't return evil for evil, the Scripture says. But it's not only that we don't return evil for evil, we don't record the evils and review the evils and rehearse the evils done to us. We don't DVR people's sins against us so that we can rewind and play it again and pause and think about it and ruminate on it and get angry all over again and then play it again. Or another metaphor, we don't take a journal, not to have a diary where we're noting the wrongs of others against us that we can review each day, logging how people have sinned against us and logging our thoughts about that. We are not to count up the sins of others against us. Why? Because Jesus doesn't count up our sins against him today. If you're here as a believer, he's not keeping a record to bring out and beat you over the head with of your wrongs. He took your wrongs upon himself. That's what Jesus did. He didn't count our sins against us. He counted, he reckoned, he counted up, he made a record of our sins upon, placed them upon Jesus in our place. Listen to this, these verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Christ is not counting our transgressions against us today as believers. He has counted those upon Christ. That is glorious good news. Glorious good news. He has cast our sins away from us and has placed them on his son. One of the Psalms says he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Why? He treated Jesus as our sins deserve. And so here, the idea is with God having treated us like that, then we can be free 
to not count other sins against us. And if we're talking about Christians, which we are here in 1 Corinthians 13, believers loving one another, if we're talking about Christians, then here's a reality. Grady made this point last week, and I've been thinking about it. Really, it, it, it touched my heart. That we don't keep a record of other sins against us because God doesn't keep a record. He frees us. He forgives us. But there's another reality here when we're talking about Christians. God's forgiven them as well. God's not keeping a record of their sins as well. So if, if you sin against me, I am to relate towards you as one who God has not counted up my sins against me. So I'm not going to count up your sins against you. But we can take it a step further. God doesn't count your sins against you. So who am I to be coming in and counting your sins against me when God doesn't count your sins against him? God has forgiven me, God has forgiven you, and that is our hope of expressing love to one another. Now, there's a lot I'm not saying here. This isn't all the Bible says about how you relate if someone's wronged you. I mean, if someone has committed a crime against you, there's a place the civil authorities should be involved in that. So I'm not talking about, uh, you know, someone commits a crime, well, let's just forget about that someone committed a crime, the authorities need to be involved in that. I'm not talking about there are times when there needs to be restitution. Someone has done something and there needs to be some form of a restitution that's appropriate ethically and biblically. So I'm not talking about all those kinds of cases and just saying, well, forget about it. I'm, I'm talking about in our heart, what is our posture towards others who have wronged us? We're not to replay it and meditate on it and be, as the ESV says, resentful. Or we could say, bitter. We're to let the past die. Let the past die with Jesus on the cross. And extend forgiveness. So we're not to make a record of wrongs, not to be resentful. The next thing he says is that we are not, love doesn't rejoice, verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But rejoices with the truth. Here's what he's saying to the folks there. He's communicating, look, if you love someone, you don't celebrate or get excited or rejoice or have an inner relish when they sin or when they fall or when someone sins against them, someone does wrong to them. That's not a moment where we are to be excited or to grieve when there's sin. We're not to gloat. You know, that can be a real temptation, right? You tell someone something, whatever, they go do it, they sin, they get consequences. See, love isn't really eager to have that I told you so kind of conversation and moment. Oh, I can't wait to talk to them about that. I told them. And there's this kind of joy to tell them again. Love isn't looking to spring into action to give a lecture because you're getting consequences and I'm frankly kind of enjoying that. Right? Now, there's not an inner relish when someone is wronged or when someone does wrong. I'm not to have a secret celebration of that, and I'm not to have a more public celebration either by passing that along to others. Not passing along someone else's failures and sins as a, as a means of let's sort of enjoy what happened. And here's how this works. I, most of us aren't going to be tempted to rejoice when something bad happens that's detached from us. I mean, someone says, did you hear that? That guy committed adultery, it ended his marriage, they, they broke up their marriage. You're not celebrating that in your heart. You're grieving over that. 
guy stole from his company, he got fired. Okay, that's not something that most of us are going to find any joy in. But if someone does us wrong, and then someone comes and then does them wrong, that's a different story. We can begin to appreciate, celebrate, rejoice that someone sinned against them, for they sinned against us. That's an example where it can happen. And we can be very easily not only enjoy that, but pass that on. It's a morsel to pass on to someone else. Listen, this is how our culture behaves. This is our media. Our media celebrates. Our media is giddy at someone's personal sins, someone's personal failures, especially a high-profile person, someone's personal weaknesses. you, You find someone that sins in the public, and here's how the media acts. It is like throwing chum to the sharks. They're all over that. It is a feeding frenzy. And what Paul's saying is that that's not the way it's supposed to work in the people of God. You're not supposed to celebrate someone's failure. You're supposed to grieve over sin. You know, I can imagine reading this, being in Corinth, and maybe being one of the people who didn't speak in tongues. Those who did were hyper-spiritual, thought they were spiritually all that, mature, godly, heavenly. And uh, so they would look down and judge other people. And, and Paul's about to, he already has been kind of laying into those folks, correcting them, loving them, but correcting them. You know, I can sort of being, imagine being one of those marginalized people in Corinth that was looked down upon, that wasn't quite as spiritual, and this letter from the Apostle Paul gets read to the church. Wouldn't it be kind of tempting to say, yes, I've been waiting for someone in authority to get in these tongue speakers' face. And correct, yes, give it to them, Paul. Be easy to be tempted that way. Paul's saying, hey, if someone's done wrong, we're not rejoicing over that. We're not rejoicing over them getting their just consequences in that kind of way. We're grieving over their sin and we're rejoicing in the truth. What's the truth? Jesus Christ is the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. There's an interesting passage in Matthew 23 where Jesus, I believe, really demonstrates this kind of attitude. Jesus has been wronged. Uh, He's been judged and critiqued by the self-righteous legalist of his day, the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, there's an extensive correction, rebuke, a judgment, a threatening, impending judgment, woes that he brings to the Pharisees. And... um, their wrongdoing and their judgment, he, he isn't, there, there's not a relishing and a celebration of, yes, I'm going to blow these guys away and point out their sin and it's going to be fun. That, that's not how he, he, he really seriously rebukes them. His holiness is on display. But at the end of it all, this is what he says to them. How often I would have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's his attitude. The holiness of God requires that their sin be rebuked. Why? So that they will see their need and come running to Jesus. They're propping themselves up on legalism and their rules and their ability to obey the law and and their self-created laws, probably more importantly. And Jesus knocks those props out from under them with correction so that they have no place to stand and will fall to him and come to God. He's trying to remove the barriers so that they can encounter him. But here's his attitude. He's not celebrating their wrong 
doing or their, his correction of their wrongdoing. He's saying, I wish I could draw you. For, for a long time, I have longed. My, my desire is to draw you to myself like a hen draws chicks under her wings. My desire is to protect, to cover. He's having to reveal and unfold because they persist in their unbelief and their sin, and he loves them enough to speak this publicly and call them to account. But his desire is to bring them close to himself. He's not pushing them away. The motive is to draw them in. And so when people do wrong, we see people that do wrong, they do wrong against us. This is the heart of love towards them. We desire to see them brought close to Jesus. We desire to see them welcomed under his wings. There's not a celebration of any kind of wrongdoing. We're not a celebration when, when anyone has done wrong. There's not a celebration when, when just when someone is um, even called on the carpet for their wrong. There is a grief over wrongdoing and a desire to see them come to Christ, a rejoicing with the truth. Well, let's move and wrap up here. The last thing he says in verse um, Seven is this. It's not irritable, it's not resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth. Verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is a sweeping statement about love. The love of God is so powerful, and His love in us enables us and empowers us to bear all things, believe all things, Hope all things, endure all things. Quickly, let's look at each of these. Love bears all things. Here's what it means. The bearing is the holding up. It means to support. Like if you bear someone's burden, that's kind of the idea. You're supporting them. You're holding them up. And love for another bears them up. Bears them up in their weakness. Bears them up in their sin. Doesn't rejoice in their sin. Doesn't act impatiently with their sin, doesn't resent their sin, isn't irritable with their sin, easily angered. It bears up all things. Paul actually says this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12. He says, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. That's his love ethic. By the grace of God, based on how God has treated me, and based on how God has treated you, I'm called to put up with anything rather than act in a way that would hinder the gospel. Put up with anything with unbelievers to get them the gospel and bearing with one another. Now, the Bible, again, is realistic. Um, In the people of Corinth, there is uh, a lot of bearing with one another that's needed, a lot of patience, a lot of holding up of fellow believers holding one another up in trouble and difficulty with their sinful attitudes, with their burdens, people dealing sinfully with one another. There's a a big call for the people at Corinth to bear with one another, and there's a big call for us to bear with one another as people are called to bear with us. There's a lot to that. How in the world can we do that? I think the only way we do that is by seeing how God bears with us. And seeing this, how the love of Christ for us is permanently affixed to us. Nothing can cut the tie between us and Jesus. Nothing can separate us from his tremendous love for us. Jesus loves us more deeply than we can imagine. 
We can never fathom it. And that is a permanent love. We must, we must see Jesus as the one who joyfully bears with us, who joyfully loves us, who joyfully will put up with anything because of his steadfast love. Romans 8 says this. This is a wonderful picture about the love of God, how he bears with us. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. There's this long list and he closes it with, nor anything. I'm saying there is nothing in all creation. That sums it up. There's God and there's creation. And so there is nothing in all creation, he says, that will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, of God, in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Paul says, there is nothing that will ever take the believer and remove him or her from the love of God. God's love is permanent, it is extravagant, it is relentless, it is inseparable from us. And he wants us to live in the good of that love, aware of that love, marinating in that love, meditating on that love, motivated by that love, waking up in the morning aware of that love, throughout the day considering that love for us in Christ Jesus who died for us, who provides for us, who's born up with us, who bears up with us in all things. And those all things are way more than we can even imagine. Who's not irritated or easily angered with us, but has a posture of grace and mercy and welcome. His love comes through to us in grace and mercy. And when we are affected, when we begin to see God that way, not the God who's on a good day slightly irritated with us, but the God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. When we're changed by that God, by His Spirit, then we are empowered to bear with others. Because it's a really small thing compared to how God bears with us. Love bears all things. It believes all things. doesn't mean that love is gullible. doesn't mean that love has no doctrinal discernment. Well, I used to be in doctrine, but into really doctrine and Bible truth, but now I just am into love. What? No, he's not talking about that. It's not like we toss the Bible and just feel good about one another and hold hands. And That's not what he's talking about. Augustine said this, that it means that we believe the best about others. Maybe. It may mean that. I mean, kind of a... I think it could mean like not being cynical towards others. Love isn't cynical and sort of smug and judgmental. That's true. I'm not sure that's what this verse means, but that is true. Love gives the benefit of the doubt to others. It's critical of my own motives, but not yours, because I don't know your heart, so I'm to believe the best. The word all things can also mean always. So some have said it means that love believes always. Love continues to believe, continues to trust God. I'm not certain which of those kind of approaches it is. I I think, not just to be diplomatic, but I think they're both true. Because I can only believe the best about someone else if I'm trusting God for them. You know, God will sort things out. I don't have to figure it all out. I, don't, I can believe the best. 
certainly until I know something else, that's, that's appropriate. That's the golden rule. I want to believe the best about you because I would want you to believe the best about me. So the golden rule, you know, prompts me to believe the best about another person. Um, but ultimately, I'm trusting God for that other person. I'm leaning into God and trusting him to work in others and leaving them to him. So it's really both. Love continues to trust God. Love believes the best about others. Believes all things. Love hopes all things. Hope is never exhausted. Listen, when we love someone, here's the reality, is that they, there are no hopeless cases. When we look around and love others, no one is a hopeless case. No one in your family is a hopeless case. No one in this church is a hopeless case. There are no hopeless cases because God has the power to work in anyone's life. And so we remain in hope towards God as we relate to others. This is what Phil Riken said. I absolutely love this. He said, most of the time it is beyond our power to solve any major problems in the lives of the people we love. This is true. Most of the time, we cannot solve the problems in other people's lives. He writes, believers keep struggling with sin. Families still have financial difficulty. Parents fight. Children fail. Friends suffer disease and death. Listen to this. But if we love people, we will not give up on what God can do. This is an expression of love. I'm never going to give up on what God can do in your life because I don't ever want you to give up on me and what God can do in my life. People are very attuned to this. They know if we have hope towards God for them. I'm not just talking about hope in them, like I'm believing in you. I'm believing in God to work in a fellow Christian's life. And I do want to believe the best about their desire to please the Lord. But ultimately, I've got to have a hope in God, and people know that. Listen, if we're exasperated, the irritable thing, like I give up on you. That's crushing to people, and they know that. This is especially true for leaders. People know when leaders don't have hope towards God for them in their failures and their weaknesses. Children are aware if their parents have hope towards God in them, that we love our children enough that we will not give up. I love his phrase, we will not give up on what God can do because of who God is. Not going to give up on a friend, even a wandering friend. I'm not going to give up on what God can do in his life. It's this kind of hope in God. I remember in 2009, going through a very difficult time. Our family walked through a difficult time. And uh, as we were walking through that difficulty, I remember one friend said this to me repeatedly. Uh, He said, you know what? The story is not over yet. He kept telling me, God's not finished. God is not finished with your story yet. What was he saying? You're great. No, he wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying, you have no problems. Let's just believe happy thoughts. No, he was in reality. You're in trouble. Okay, let's acknowledge that. But let's look to God, and I have hope for you because I have hope in God. God's not finished. That is communicating love. It was the most loving thing someone could communicate to me at times when I would be hopeless, that I have hope to God with you. I'm coming alongside. I'm putting my arm around you. Let's hope in God together. And if you can't hope, I'll hope in God for you. 
I'll pray for you. I'll intercede for you. This is love. This communicates love to those who are in difficulty, to those who are, in, who are struggling. This communicates love to those with whom we differ. This communicates love to those who have sinned against us even. If we love people, we will not give up on what God can do. Love hopes all things. And here's the last idea. Love endures all things. Very similar to what's been said before. It's patient. It, it believes all things. It bears all things. That's, that's the love we're talking about. An enduring kind of love. It never gives up. This word I read was a military kind of word that talks about standing in the assault. Of, of the enemy and just enduring, kind of a persistence in the face of opposition and difficulty. Second Timothy 2, Paul said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that, all, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Endure. I'm happy to endure for those that God has called to himself, even those who may not know him yet. He's saying, I'm happy to endure whatever kind of difficulty for the people of God. How is that possible? Well, again, it's only possible if we see the persevering love of God towards us. God's endured with me and will for eternity. The steadfast love of the Lord, which in itself means it's not going to change, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Is God slightly irritated with you or really irritated with you today? No. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Is, is, God, um, is God somehow about to give up, about to stop bearing with you? No, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Is God about to turn unkind towards you? No, love is patient, love is kind. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. This is the way Jesus has loved us, just what this passage says. He's loved us selflessly. Love doesn't pursue its own way. Jesus has loved us selflessly, patiently, forgivingly. He's not keeping a record of wrongs. He's laid those on Christ. He's bearing with us. He's enduring. Not bearing with us like, oh, what a hassle. He loves us. He's glad to bear because he is changing us by his power. And he offers us a sure hope, sure hope that he will conclude his process in our lives. Do you know that love today? And that's really the important thing. Do you know the love of God? Do you know that kind of love? Is your Christian life motivated by this kind of love, the love of Christ for me? Or is it motivated by just doing the stuff? Okay, what's the stuff i got to do here? Okay, do that. Or just get my chart here, put names on it, the names of the people over here, the characteristics over here, check and rate myself. Is it, it's always about all the stuff I'm supposed to go do. Well, yeah, we are supposed to go do stuff, but it's to be motivated by the love of Christ for us, the heart motive, that's really mostly it. If we are affected by the love of God and then acting for his glory with the good of others in view, this stuff will take care of itself, so to speak. God changes our hearts. We'll live in the good of that. The Spirit will enable us to live this way. Do you know that love? That's my heart for us as a people. So maybe we can pray about that tonight as we gather and wait on the Lord. May, may we know the love of Christ. And may that change us in the way we relate with one another and together as a people. The renewal that comes from meditating on the cross and the resurrection and knowing God personally. That's our hope to love. And it's not just a vague hope. It's a short hope.
God is changing us. Some of us in the room may not even know the Lord. You say, I've never even, don't even know this love. Maybe you're a churchgoer. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you think of yourself as a moral and a pretty good person. Maybe you've read your Bible. But you say, I've never had this love of God explode on my heart. I've never gone from a place where I felt like I didn't know God to I really know God. I don't know what it's like to experience this love in my heart and be changed. In other words, I I know about God, but I can't say that I feel like the Spirit, I've ever felt like the Spirit of God lives in me and is changing me. There's something that was dead that's alive in me by His love. I don't know about that. I can tell you about religion, I can tell you about doing good deeds, but I can't tell you about being transformed and changed on the inside. Then you need to experience the forgiveness of Christ. And you can do that today by just turning to him and asking him to forgive your sins. Looking at Jesus, the one who died in your place, asking him to forgive you, asking his love to make you a new person and to change you. Become a Christian. That is, turn from yourself and turn to belief in Jesus as the one who died and rose for you. Paying the price that was due you for your sins and receiving him by faith. Believing in him. Offering your life to him. Trusting him. You can do that today and experience the love of God in a transforming way. Others of us know him, but we need the love of God to renew and revive and refresh us. We don't need just a new to-do list. We need a renewed heart in the love of God. How we view God's posture towards us, how we view God, we need that changed so that our hearts are softened in the way we relate to others. May God do that by his mercy and his grace. Let's pray. God, we pray today that you would show us your love. It is so apparent when we look at your scripture. Your love is so apparent and so real to us. And we just want to live in the good of that. God, I pray that you would, Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would melt our hearts and mold us around the love of God. Please come and touch us today. Lord, I believe there's people in the room that need to encounter your love right now. They just need a fresh understanding. of. They need to relate with you in a new way. They need hope. And uh, they need to experience your love so that they can turn and love others. Lord, there's broken relationships. There's resentment, I'm sure, from some of us in the room with some of us. Lord, we, we need a fresh start in your love to see how you loved us so that we can extend that to others. We need your grace and your power to do that. Please come and help us. Change our view. Change our thoughts. In an increasing way, to know you better. Trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.